The Highway of Tears in northern British Columbia has seen the vanishing and murders of upwards of 40 women and girls. Of the 18 cases the RCMP Project EPANA Task Force is investigating, six of them were First Nations girls under the age of 18. Today, we're telling three of those stories. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the first in the year-long Third Thursday series. Every third Thursday of the month, I will be profiling another missing or murdered Indigenous persons case. I'm working with a researcher named Annie on this project, and you can hear more about how we're working this in the Out with the Old episode posted at the end of 2019. Unlike this episode, most of the cases we will be covering will be short episodes. Annie is working directly with families, and many of the cases will be ones with little or no media coverage. But to kick off this project, I wanted to start with stories from The Highway of Tears. The Highway of Tears is many people's entry point to understanding the violence against Indigenous women in North America. But I find that it often falls into the same spot that stories about serial killers fall into. We speak broadly of what's happening, but we don't talk much about the individual victims. That's why I want to approach this episode a little differently. And instead of focusing on the whole of the Highway of Tears or the legal initiatives, or any of that, I want to just focus on these three cases of Indigenous children who are included in the RCMP's count of 18 victims. The number of missing and murdered women and children along the Highway of Tears is in dispute. It could reach up to 40 or more if you look more broadly at the cases and don't only focus on the RCMP's guidelines. But let's look at those 18 classified by the RCMP as under their EPANA task force. Ten of the 18 are First Nations women and girls. That is 55%. When you consider that the total Indigenous population of British Columbia is less than 6%, you can see that this is widely disproportionate. But that's not what we're here for. We're not here for statistics. You probably already know this stuff, or you're vaguely aware of it. Today, we're here to tell three of the stories of the First Nations children who were among the missing and murdered. I do have plans, don't worry, to cover the other three. But for today, I want to make sure we are giving these victims, our time, our attention, and we can remember them as individuals, not just as Highway of Tears victims. The first case we're going to talk about tonight is the youngest victim, 12-year-old Monica Jack. Monica was less than two weeks shy of her 13th birthday, and she just got a new bicycle as a birthday gift from her father, She was so excited about this gift and was looking for reasons to ride the bike. On May 6th, 1978, 
Monica had asked her older brother, Glenn, if she could go with him to a party he was going to that night. But Glenn said no, knowing that their mother, Madeline, would not be a fan of him taking his 12-year-old sister to a party. But Monica's cousin called, and she asked if Monica wanted to go shopping with her in Merritt. Merritt was the nearest city to where Monica lived on the Kilchena Reserve, and Monica had never made this bike ride by herself before. But it was a really busy Saturday for the family. Madeline was a single mom. She had a house full of people. Her two sons, three daughters, and her grandson were all living at home. And it was her youngest child's birthday that weekend. The family also usually baked desserts all day on Saturdays that they would then sell at the school during the week. It was a fundraiser. So with so much going on, Madeline told Monica she could go. This area was somewhere the family felt safe. There were only two houses out where they lived on the reserve. And Merritt was a small town, but it had all the amenities they needed, so they were regularly in town. At nearly 13 years old, there was no reason Madeline should have felt unsafe letting Monica go into town on a day she was just too busy to drive her. So Monica left and she met up with her cousin in town. At some point after Monica had been gone for a bit, Madeline realized that she actually needed to go into town. She needed to get some supplies for an overnight fishing trip. This wasn't a casual for fun fishing trip like you might have in your head. Madeline fed her family through fishing and not just her family. The reserve had a custom that they would share whatever was caught so that everyone had enough. So Madeline drove into Merritt, picked up what she needed, and headed home. On her way back home, she saw Monica riding her bike, headed towards the reserve. She honked, and one of Monica's siblings called out to her asking if she wanted a ride the rest of the way home. Monica said no, so Madeline kept driving. Before Madeline would have expected Monica to have made it home on her bike, she left to go to that fishing trip. She got home very early the next morning and found out that Monica had never made it back the night before. She contacted the RCMP to report her missing, and then she called everyone she could think of. No one had seen Monica, but they all showed up to the house to support Madeline, and to help search for Monica. When the RCMP officer got to her home, Madeline felt he was rather dismissive of her. She was a little taken aback, but she also sadly wasn't surprised. She later said, quote, If I wasn't an Indian living as a single mom, he probably wouldn't have talked to me that way, end quote. Regardless, he did take the report and a search began, mostly community-based, and Monica's older brother found her new bicycle discarded on a gravel path among some bushes leading to the lake. Investigators wondered if Monica had gone down to the lake and accidentally fallen in, so they did a search by boat. None of these searches led to any trace of Monica aside from her bicycle. Witnesses came forward reporting that they saw a truck camper along the road in this time frame that Monica likely went missing. 
One of them reported seeing a bicycle across the road from where the truck camper was pulled over. Pretty early on in the investigation, a 31-year-old man named Gary Handlin came on police radar. He had a truck camper, like witnesses reported, and the RCMP officer who went out to his property took photographs of it. Handlin was questioned by the RCMP, but not charged. The case eventually grew cold, and Monica was missing for 17 years until June 1995. A forest contractor was up in a mountainous area near Merritt doing some slash burning. This just means it was a controlled burn of an area that was a fire risk. Slash burning can help prevent out-of-control forest fires, the types that devastate areas, which, of course, we saw in California and we are currently seeing on a mass scale in Australia. While up on the mountain, the man found a human skull and he called police. A full search of the area showed a separate spot where there were three bone fragments as well. The skull and the bone fragments had been burned. This doesn't mean a killer burned a body. This means that the clearing had been burned before, in the last 17 years, and it's possible that that is when the burning of the bones happened. Forensic investigators set up a grid search of the entire area, and they combed the ground. They dug in, they sifted the dirt, looking for any evidence or additional remains that might help identify the body, but nothing more was found. Through dental records, the body was eventually identified as Monica Jack. Though the match may not be as exact as we tend to like, in 1978, in remote British Columbia, people weren't getting dental x-rays like they do now, where they get them every year and have regular work done. So it wasn't as easy to match as it might be to someone today. But the RCMP, the family, and the Crown Prosecution all believe that these were Monica's remains. It was announced at the time that the police identified a suspect, but they didn't have enough evidence for an arrest, and the case again grew cold. Let's fast forward to 2014, 36 years after Monica Jack went missing. Gary Handlin, the man with the camper from 1978, was being looked at again. The RCMP ran one of their famous, or infamous, depending on how you look at it, Mr. Big Stings. This setup is essentially an undercover officer who acts as the head of a criminal gang. They then recruit people into this criminal enterprise and use it as a way to elicit confessions for past crimes out of the suspects. The interactions are, of course, recorded by hidden cameras. So in this case, Hanlon did some car repossession work for the gang for about nine months, which was long enough for him to trust that they were the bad guys they said they were. Then the Mr. Big crime boss undercover officer told Hanlon the police were closing in on him for the murder of Monica Jack. He said they had a witness and DNA evidence. Obviously, they had neither, but Hanlon didn't know that. Mr. Big 
told him that they had someone willing to take the fall for him, someone who was so sick that he didn't care about going to jail. But Hanlon had to give details of the murder so that this guy taking the fall could really sell it. Hanlon's confession wasn't a straight line. The video was about 90 minutes long, and it was a journey through Handlin having a lot of trouble remembering the details of the case. He said he couldn't remember a lot because he must have been drunk at the time. But he did remember that he picked up a woman he described as native. He had sex with her, lost his temper for some reason, and he might have strangled her. When Mr. Big said she was actually an 11 or 12-year-old girl, Handlin agreed with him. Eventually, the story that ekes out was that there was a pullout on Highway 5A in Merritt where he pulled over his truck camper. And when Monica passed him on her bike, he grabbed her, threw her bike towards the lake, and then forced her into the truck. He then sexually assaulted her, murdered her, and left her body where her skull was eventually found. The then 67-year-old was arrested, and at trial, Hanlon's attorney said his confession was false. Hanlon thought he was going to be arrested for the murder and didn't want to lose everything. And he was presented with the opportunity to get out of it by letting someone else take the fall. He said all the details Hanlon did have came from what he learned through the media and from his initial police interview in 1978. That's why things were so fuzzy. He was trying to remember what he had been told and what he had heard, not his firsthand knowledge of a crime. He also tried to bring in doubt about the identification of the body, saying that this dental comparison had some issues and that this might not be Monica at all. And if you have reasonable doubt about the identity of the body, you have to have reasonable doubt about the person who allegedly killed this person. The jury disagreed, and in January 2019, Handland was found guilty and given a life sentence. He will be well into his 80s before he's eligible for parole. He had also been charged with the 1975 murder of 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert. Handlin was somehow connected to the family. He was known to them. But after he was found guilty in Monica's case and sentenced to pretty much the rest of his life, that charge was dropped. Being asked about finding justice for Monica 40 years later, Monica's mother said there is no closure, but that her family would continue to carry on. Monica Jack's case is one of only two Highway of Tears cases considered solved. The other case, the 1974 murder of Colleen McMillan, was solved in 2012 when DNA evidence matched known serial rapist and suspected serial murderer Bobby Jack Fowler. Fowler lived and worked in Prince George in 1974, but there would be no trial here. Fowler had been convicted of another murder and died in prison, so by the time his DNA matched, he was long dead. The next case we're going to talk about today is that of 16-year-old Delphine Nakai. 
I have seen Delphine's last name pronounced many different ways, but I'm going to go with Nakai. And honestly, anything in here that I mispronounce, I do apologize for. Delphine lived with her uncle in Telqua, British Columbia, and this village sits right on Highway 16. Delphine's mother had severe health issues, and that's why she was living with her uncle. Just two years before Delphine's disappearance, her mother had spent four months in a coma. In spite of Delphine living with her uncle, she did visit her mother as often as she could, but due to distance, this wasn't as much as either one of them would have liked. They were quite close. On June 13, 1990, Delphine told her uncle she was going to meet up with some friends in nearby Smithers, which is just about 16 kilometers or 10 miles away. Not too far, but obviously too far to walk. She left the house around 2 in the afternoon, hitchhiking to Smithers without apparent issue. She spent the day with three of her friends before she headed home. Delphine called her uncle around 10 p.m. to let him know she was on her way. Two of the friends she had spent the day with reported seeing her on the eastbound side of Highway 16 trying to hitch a ride. They did not see who picked her up. This was the last time anyone saw Delphine. When she didn't show up at home the next day, her sister contacted the police and reported her missing. There was no immediate search for Delphine, with the police dismissing this as a teen who just didn't come home and was probably out partying. She would eventually show up. It wasn't until days later that an investigation began. For those outside of North America who may not be aware, it's important to note that partying is coded language for she's indigenous, so she's probably out getting drunk somewhere. It's dripping with racism, and this isn't just me reading into something. The systemic racism running through these investigations has been documented, and in some cases, admitted to. So Delphine was last seen wearing a denim jacket, hot pink jeans, and LA gear running shoes. She was also carrying a black purse, which had the usual things a 16-year-old girl would have in her purse. It's 1990, so obviously she had hairspray. She also had a brush, she had her makeup, and an address book with photos. Some people believe that Delphine may have been a victim of Bobby Jack Fowler, that serial killer who had died before they linked him to another case. But it's not clear that Fowler was in British Columbia at this time or any time outside of the mid-1970s. Delphine was not the only missing person in her family. A year before she went missing, her cousin Cecilia, who was 15, went to Vancouver to visit her mother. She was last seen leaving her mother's house, and the explanation given by her mother as to why she left was that Cecilia decided to move out to live on the streets. One family member told authorities that Cecilia had moved to Vancouver Island, though it doesn't appear there is any evidence she was ever on Vancouver Island. There have been no confirmed sightings or contact with Cecilia since the day her mother last saw her leaving the house back in October 1989. As time has gone on, 
Some have said she was actually in Smithers along Highway 16 when she went missing. But the official police stance on this is that she was last seen in Vancouver, which is a 13-hour drive from Smithers. I'm wondering if people are possibly conflating Cecilia's case with that of her cousin Delphine, because Delphine did go missing from Highway 16 in Smithers. But the last confirmed sighting of Cecilia was in Vancouver in October 1989. There is not a lot of information about Cecilia out there. And honestly, due to the distance, it looks very unlikely that these two disappearances of the cousins are related. The point in bringing up Cecilia's case is to remind everyone that violence against Indigenous women is so high that it isn't out of the norm for a family to have multiple relatives become victims of a major violent crime. Delphine and Cecilia had another cousin named Roberta, and it's been widely reported that she was later murdered. I have tried to find more information about Roberta's death, but a lot of the online write-ups have mistakenly identified her as a missing woman named Roberta Ferguson, who went missing a year before Cecilia did. They are not the same person. I did a search in the newspaper archives, and someone with Roberta's first, middle, and last name did show up in 1997 as alive, but I found absolutely nothing about her death. So I don't know the resolution of Roberta's case. Her killer may be known, but Delphine and Cecilia's cases are still unsolved. The girls remain missing, and their cases have long since grown cold. The last case we're going to cover tonight is that of 14-year-old Ayla Sarek Auger. Ayla had spent most of her life in Alberta before her family moved to British Columbia, specifically to Prince George, sometime around 2004. Her mother wanted to go to the university there to study social work. Ayla was a really sweet girl. She volunteered to help at her school's office. She took on a kindergarten buddy who she really helped out and really became attached to. She was described by her school principal as happy-go-lucky and just a really typical upbeat teen. Because she was fairly new to the area, she didn't know a lot of people there, but she had made friends. On the evening of February 2nd, 2006, Ayla's mom dropped her off at the mall with her brother and her sister, who were also teenagers. And after their trip to the mall, Ayla was going to a friend's house for a sleepover. When Ayla didn't return from the sleepover the next day, her mother reported her missing. The police initially brushed this off as Ayla staying out with a friend and not telling her mom. This was even printed in the newspaper. An investigator's official statement was that they initially treated this as more of a runaway situation where Ayla would eventually turn up. Her family was not satisfied with this, and they put up posters all over Prince George. Her mother, Audrey, walked the streets looking for her. On February 10, 2006, after being missing for eight days, Ayla's body was found in a ditch by someone driving down Highway 16. This was about 12 miles or 20 kilometers east of Prince George. There were early rumors that Ayla had been seen getting into a black van on February 3rd, 
but that has not been confirmed as a solid sighting. The investigation did show that around 1 a.m., the night she was supposed to be sleeping over with her friend, Ayla was caught on Save on Food's security camera walking past. She was walking in the direction of her home. Why Ayla hadn't stayed the rest of the night with her friend has not been made public, as far as I can tell, but it's assumed she was on her way home when she disappeared. No trace of Ayla has been found. Her mother, like so many of these families, became a fierce advocate for change until her own death in 2013 in a car accident. And I want to talk about this topic of advocacy, because it's not just these families, it's other families who have had loved ones go missing or murdered. I know I talked about the Jack family and how Doreen's sister has been telling her story. Other families with women missing from the Highway of Tears have done the same. We give a lot of praise to the Canadian government for holding hearings, forming the task force, finally running public transportation in the remote areas to cut down on hitchhiking, and so forth. There have been a lot of initiatives that have made steps in the right direction. But we need to take a big step back and look at what was behind the government's actions. No politician saw a problem and stepped in to fix it. Everything the Parliament and the RCMP have done has been because of advocacy. The families of the missing and murdered literally took to the streets to organize awareness walks and marches. They got loud. They went on TV and to the print media with their stories. The communities around them made noise. They did the work. They took on this labor. And they're still doing it in the face of racism, classism, and misogyny. What the Indigenous communities and the families of the missing and murdered are doing is pushing the Canadian government to do their job. It is a sad state of affairs when a group of people have to demand proper investigations into missing persons cases, into missing children's cases, and not accept they must be off partying, aka they're drunk somewhere. So the next time you or me, because I do it too, when we get in the mood to praise the Canadian government for acting on this crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, let's remember the decades that they ignored the issue and instead honor the families and the communities who spent those same decades demanding change. They deserve and have earned all the credit. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crimelines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 